Thank you for listening to the Matt's Movie Reviews podcast, available on iTunes, Spotify, Podbean, and Stitcher. Also, please follow Matt's Movie Reviews on Facebook, YouTube, Parlor, and Instagram. And of course, be sure to visit www.mattsmoviereviews.net for the latest reviews, top 10 lists, and more. Now, on to the show. A hobby is something you do because you enjoy Collecting is something you do because you feel you have to do. Star Wars gave the world collectibles, action figures, toys, to the scale that no one had ever seen before. When Batman came out, it was the first superhero to really do the same thing. I don't want to get into Batman collecting. I don't want to do it, but it looks so great. And the logos are appearing here, they're appearing there. And I thought, oh, one item will be all right. And another item will be, I'll buy the board game and I'll play the board game, which was complete crap, but I did it anyway. And I'll buy this other thing and I'll buy that other thing. And Hello and welcome to the Matt's Movie Reviews Podcast. I am your host, Matthew Perkovich, and this is episode number 296. Due to make its North American debut at the 30th Annual Cinequest Film and Creativity Festival this year titled Cinejoy is Batman and Me, a Melbourne-made documentary that tells the story of Darren Daggs Maxwell and his collection of Batman memorabilia, with which Darren has a very complex relationship. A fascinating look at the highs and lows of obsessive collecting and pop culture fandom, Batman and Me is a must-watch during this time where all things superheroes and pop culture are at an all-time high. Joining me now to talk about Batman and Me is the film's director, Michael Wayne. Michael, thank you very much for joining me today. Thanks for having me, Matt. So this is a film that took five years of your life uh, to, to complete, and the origins of it is very interesting. You're on the net, um, you had a bit of a nostalgic moment. You're looking, I imagine you're looking up your own kind of old Batman figures. In this case, it's Batman slime that you're searching for, uh, which in mm-hmm. itself is just hilarious, Batman slime. Um, and you f- come across this blog by, by Darren, and in, in this blog has everything about his collection in there. You're reading it, and what is it about him and his story and his collection and his relationship with his collection in particular that really sparked the idea that, you know what, this will make a really great documentary. What it was was that you're normally when you find these collector websites, they're proud of what they've got. They're showing it off. They're saying this took me this X amount of effort to get or this much money and how good is this? This is great. This is the only one of its kind. But this guy's website was here's all this stuff and isn't it just junk? It's mass-produced junk. I hate it. I, this one I can't even look at. I can't stand looking at it. And you just think none of it ever was I'm proud of this or I like this. It was just all really negative. I'm like, what is this? This is so unusual for a collector. And the more I read, the more I got the sense that he seemed to resent what he had. And I thought, this is unusual. This is interesting. But he, but it also that, that negativity came with it, a, um, uh, a self-awareness about collecting and, and the uh, some of the inherent ridiculous parts of, of what he was doing. So, um, yeah, I just thought this is, there's something in this. There's a, there's a story to be told here. What's really interesting about Darren and his collection, and it's a very specific collection too. It's between the years 89 and 97, particularly those four, first four Batman movies when those movies came out. Um, he doesn't, he isn't really a Batman fan per se. I mean, when you might say a Batman fan with this amount of obsession to collection, they might be able to cite a particular 
comic books, characters, etc. He's not that kind of guy when it comes to this particular subject matter. Um, and that's really interesting to me. Is that something that really struck you as well? It shocked me uh, when we finally got to that part because the first time I went to see him, um, we had a general sort of discussion about what was in the room. I was saying, oh, look at this thing. How did you get that? Or when did you get that? And he couldn't really tell me. He didn't know specifics about each item. Um, and then when I started to sort of say, well, why this Batman movie or why why this stuff? He, he just didn't have that kind of knowledge. And I mean, I'm not an expert either, but he, it was almost as if, it didn't matter what it was. It was just, well, it looked good, so I got it. And um, I think what what shocked me the most was when he finally did admit to us, um, yeah, I'm just not, I, I thought the movies were okay, but I didn't, I'm not really a Batman fan. I, I did it because I felt peer pressure from my, my fan community that I was in. Mm. I think it's really interesting as well is that sometimes, I think we kind of look at ourselves and what type of obsessive tendencies we have as well. I mean, I think a lot of us born, I think like Darren was born, what say 77 or so I was born in 81. I imagine you would probably be around the same age length as well. We grew up at a time when the movies and comics and everything, when pop culture really started to take its hold, this post kind of star Wars kind of generation with mm. myself. I had my own obsessions as well in collections um, not to the extent of what Darren has, um, but I used to love collecting anything Al Pacino related. When I really got into movies, Pacino was my poison. Um, mm-hmm. And that I bought all the DVDs and all the Blu-rays and multiple collections of The Godfather, etc. But I still have this stuff and I will watch it once in a while. And it's not shrink wrap. It's been used. It's been watched. Michael, what was your poison growing up? Were you a Batman guy as well? Or did you have a different type of uh, collection when you were growing up? Well, I got four words for you: teenage mutant ninja turtles. Those oh, things yes. were everywhere. Yeah. It was massive. It was huge. You could not avoid it. And it was again the peer pressure thing at school. Everyone was into it, so you had to get into it. And it was a good thing that it was good, and I was the right kind of demographic for it. But Batman as well. I mean, I was the right age for those films. And yeah, I, I had a huge collection of toys, and I think that that led into having that experience gave me the enough insight to be able to make this movie. I think that if you were a complete outsider, you didn't collect anything, you didn't understand that world, it would be hard to understand what Darren had done and how it contrasted with what other collectors who really enjoy what they do um, are doing. And so when we did speak to other collectors, it was easy to um, compare and contrast with Darren's, especially in the movie we talked to his best friend, um, Peter, who is also a Batman collector and his, he's got a passion for it. And we've got all these good scenes in there where they're sort of clashing over their collecting um, methodology. And yeah. that was endlessly amusing to me, just the way that they would, no, 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 you've got to keep it out of the packet. You've got to use it. You've got to play with it. No, 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 you've got to keep it in the packet. It was just back and forth all the time. And I think that's a really good thing we should have mentioned. Darren's stuff is still sealed in the packaging. He wouldn't, he's yep, not, he wouldn't he's, touch it. He wouldn't open it. Not at all. And I mean, I imagine with your Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles collection when you were younger, you played with the toys. They right? were abused. Yes. They were used and abused because that's what they were for. They were they were for taking to school. They were for playing as toys. They were, if a head came off, if an arm came off, that's just the battle damage of life. But, yeah, this this not with this guy. And, and for, to me, um, when you don't use this stuff, it remains a product from a factory. It's not really, it's not really a, 
collectible to me if it's just sort of yeah i took it straight from the shop and put it on my shelf and never thought about it again it doesn't have any kind of invested um emotion in it and you can't really connect with it and that's what i found in darren's room speaking of that room which we will refer to from now on as the batman room um yeah. <laughs> it's overwhelming the bat cave the bat cave exactly it, it is overwhelming like even like I'm not standing in it, but the way that you, you shot it, the way that you present it, the way that Darren features all the different types of uh, board games and toys and what have you, it just kind of like, wow, this is just, just really crazy. Um, was there a particular, when you walk into this room, okay, you walk in there, you, you filmed there a few times, several times. When you walk into that room repeatedly, is there a particular item that always stood out to you? And was there an item that didn't make it on the screen that was particularly impressive to you? Um, one thing that did stand out to me, and it always just sort of struck me as a little bit sad, is we'd walk in and, you know, there are these shelves just full of all these mint in packet toys from the 80s and the 90s, and, and it's all very impressive, you know, in a way to a certain kind of person. Um, but there on, on one of the shelves was this little dangling... It was a bootleg. It couldn't have been real. It didn't have a bat logo on his chest. He just looked a bit sad and, and disfigured. This um, this little hanging Batman toy with his arms out and this this terrified expression on a, his his half sculpted face. And I just thought, why would you have this? Why would you get this? Why would you have gone to the shop, Darren, and gone? That's what I want in my collection. That looks good. It's it's sort of it's fake. It's not in a packet. It doesn't do anything. It's just. Um, it struck me as what what was he what was he thinking and that again that got me thinking about like what went into the curation of this collection it wasn't just i need to have everything it's it was very specific like you said before um but to have something like that on there just always struck me as why 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 would you keep that and as for stuff that we didn't put on screen yeah he had all this stuff that he even he had put away and and had forgotten about wow um and he would show us sometimes some of this stuff, but a lot of the time um, he'd sort of keep it away. And he had all these photos. He'd taken photos over the years of the collection in all the different places he'd stayed. And there was stuff that we'd go, well, where's that now? One of the one of the photos was there was a huge coffin in the room for some reason, and it was full of Batman stuff. We said, where's this coffin? He said, oh, I got rid of it years ago. Why? Why, why get rid of that and keep some of the other junk that you've still got? Um mm. Was it a Batman coffin, kind of like one of those Kiss? You, you've seen the Kiss coffin, right, with the band Kiss. They actually, you can buy a casket yeah. with, the, with the Kiss logo. Is, was it a Batman coffin or was it just like a, a general coffin, a storage space to put his extra stuff in? I think it was a sort of generic kind of coffin. And he um, he told us early on that his, his three visual obsessions in life are Batman, Darth Vader, and Dracula. And mm. that doesn't go, that obsession doesn't go beyond they look cool and I like wearing, I think he personally likes wearing capes. Right, um, and there were plenty of photos we got access to of him in a variety of capes. So I think that the coffin was some sort of Dracula tie in there. Um, but he did; it was a sort of um, showpiece early on in the collection room of of just cramming all this stuff into a coffin as well. Um, it just stuff like that would strike me as why did you get rid of that? But some of this other stuff you have kept. Um, and of course, the other thing that was unseen and is a big regret of mine is in the film, he talks about how he got this giant Batcave toy and it was in this massive box and it was massive. It was a huge box this toy was in, a big Batcave playset. 
And when he got it, um, he had to put it on lay-by and they wrapped it up in plastic for him to keep it safe. But when yeah. he opened it, someone had put a bit of sticky tape on the box and it ripped the box. Oh. Uh, and I tried and tried and tried to get him to show us this rip because I thought it's either massive or it's so minuscule that, you, you know, like it, it'll just show the kind of obsession that he had with, with the mitten packet. Uh, but he wouldn't do it. He would not show it to us. And even in the room, he had the thing turned backwards so that the this tear could never be seen. And that, again, that was just a, a how come you've hung up on this where there are so many other things in the room that I think, why would you have this? I don't mean to play armchair um, psychiatrist here, um, but what really struck me is that, so you go to his house and it's just middle-class Melbourne, doesn't stand out as something like, you know, the stereotypical mm. comic book guy Simpsons character kind of thing, right? Mm. He's, mm. Uh, he, he's got his own place, he's, he's got domestic life, and then you've got this door with a Batman symbol and you go in there and it's kind of like this alternate kind of world. Does it, does it seem like to you that he was kind of um, compartmentalising his life and in one section of his, of his psyche was this kind of Batman thing? Um, it just it just really struck me because it, it stood out as like a rich kind of not only a symbolic thing but a very real thing as well. It's almost like you, you walk into someone's brain and they got like the Batman uh, room in, in the Batman files. Like it, it's just it's such a weird kind of thing. You know, you've you've hit the nail on the head. I think that that being in his house was I think like being in his brain because he did have. It wasn't the only thing he'd ever collected, and he had in in the front room he had sort of his his DVDs and. Um, one of his other earlier collections and the, before the Batman stuff, he'd, he'd gotten into the movie Dune. Right, so I'm yeah. sure he's excited right now with the new one about to come out. Yeah. But um, he, he was into that and he got every bit of merchandise that was possible to get. He got everything. And, and that's on display in his house. You can go in and it's there and he's, it, 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 it's a typical kind of collection that you can see someone is proud of having done and they want people to comment on it. There it is outside. But the Batman stuff, yeah, hidden away, compartmentalised for sure. And I think that it was because he was, and this is what we came to learn as we made the film, is that he was struggling with how he felt about the Batman stuff, what he, what place it had in his life. He didn't quite know how to process it, I think. So it was better for him just to put it away. And there was no other Batman stuff anywhere in his house. And that is unusual for a collector. I think any collector would think why why aren't you 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 put all this time and effort into it why wouldn't you have it on display why wouldn't you want to show off what you've done but no he had it all in the room he would show it off to people who came around but he said he got no enjoyment out of it so he, he just sort of kept it away uh it was odd and the house did look normal whereas when we went to his friend's house that was more of a typical collector's house with the stuff everywhere and mm. you know sort of the um the day-to-day actual household stuff wasn't as well kept as some of the collection which i found amusing in itself just thinking out loud here do you think it has something to do with him trying to mimic the characters that he admires i mean you talked about batman batman notoriously has a secret identity with a bat cave underneath his house you talk about dracula he's a guy that sneaks away to a coffin at the bottom of his castle is he trying to kind of somewhat replicate what those characters do I wouldn't be surprised. I mean, in in his world, it's a, it, a big thing is um, sort of nicknames. Like every all of his friends have nicknames. He's he's Darren as well as Dags, and yeah. I I got the sense as we went along, I got the sense that there were certain things he would attribute to Dags, and there were certain things that he would attribute to Darren. And and he he had a he'd had a filmmaking career earlier on in his life, and all of that was strictly Darren. 
but then all the fan community stuff. He's very he's very involved in the Star Wars fan community. He um, co-founded Australia's biggest Star Wars fan club, and I think it's the world's biggest Star Wars fan club at the moment. Mm. Um, so he's a massive player in the Star Wars fan community. Um, and in that world, he's Dags for sure. Everyone knows him as Dags. Um, so it was an interesting split there. I do I do think that the secret identity angle was was a part of it. And um, yeah, but but having said that, he never really spent time in the bat room. He never really gave it much thought. He said, mm-hmm. um, and it didn't seem to play a big part of his in his life. So that's why I do think he was struggling uh, at the time we found him with what it meant in his life. And I suppose. I mean, some of these these comic stories about Batman, I'm sure there are plenty of stories where he's sort of struggling with, do I want to keep doing this or not? Yeah, definitely. I mean, it's really interesting. There's a, a movie quote that kept repeating in my head. It was from the movie Fight Club, and, it went, and the quote was something like, sometimes we don't own the things, you know, the things own us. Um, mm. and, and, and the whole thing about materialism, what have you. When it mm. comes to, to Darren, just... Do you think it is obsession or do you think it is addiction? Because there is a fine line between the two. I think obsession, you need to have a passion for whatever you're obsessing over. It didn't right. seem like he didn't necessarily have the passion for it. I mean, we spoke before, he, the knowledge of the product itself, of the character, he was kind of more kind of like, you know, he didn't dive too deep into it. It was more of a, kind of like a superficial above ground thing, but he must own every little thing that he, he came across, especially in that time period. That's, that's the kind of things that like, you know, addicts have, right? Yeah. And, and if I can step into your um, uh, psychiatrist armchair for a minute, uh, it's, I think, I think what it was, was um, he, when he, when he was unable to tell us, anything about how he had gotten each particular item when he would, he'd say, no, I can't remember it. He said, he said to us that he'd go to the shop, he'd get the thing, he'd put it on his shelf and then he'd forget all about that thing and move straight onto the next one. And that is addiction. That's not, there's no passion there. There's no obsession. You're right. Like obsession has to have a passion behind it. You have to be obsessed with, I need to get this stuff because I love it. And he was just, I need to get this stuff because I need this collection to be bigger. And it was more of an addiction to, I think the the dopamine rush of I got something new, my collection's that much bigger, my friends are going to be that much happier with it when they see it. Um, better move on to the next thing, and that was it. I think I think it was addiction, and that's the more I spoke to him, the more parallels to addiction uh, came up, and I, I just thought it's it's something that I mean you only have to go to a supermarket now to see that collecting is everywhere and it's targeted really at kids. They get kids in early. Um, kids are collecting, you know, these ushies or, or toys or whatever they're directed to collect. And then a lot of kids will take that into adulthood. Yeah. And that's where it can sort of take hold as an addiction, where you just have come to accept that as behaviour that you should do. And it's it's if you if that's what you love doing, it's it's good. Um, if you've got a passion for it and you can. That that's just what you want to do with your life. That's good, but um, I think sometimes we can accept it to a point where it's it's um, overlooking the, the less savoury aspects of collecting. I, and I think a lot of it comes down to as well the role that merchandising has in a lot of this. I mean, you there was there are statistics in the movie about the billions upon billions of dollars that's you know 
creators and studios make just selling this stuff. And it, it seems like to me that a lot of the times when it comes to these movies, these franchises, whether it be Batman or Star Wars or what have you, that the movies themselves are just two-hour two hour commercials to sell the toys or to sell the shirts or to sell whatever whatever product you can put out there um, to people who are willing to pay for it. Um, do you think that... I'm not going to say the word responsibility because at the end of the day, it comes down to the individual to buy whatever they want to buy. And mm. Darren did share a story about, I think he was at the um, movie world in Gold Coast um, and mm. there was a Batman towel and it cost 90 bucks. And when he questioned as to why this piece of just cotton material would be so much, the person behind the counter said, well, the collectors will buy it. Um, and most of the time they might buy it. Um, do you think a lot of it comes down to a certain, um, what's the word I'm trying to say? They would say marketing, but I'd say a manipulation of people's behaviours and people's obsessions that they that these products come out at such a frequent and such a, uh, a, such a range of, of, of things? Because it just seems to me that there's a certain... Um, um, uh, advantage taken by these studios and these um, in these companies um, with people like Darren that they're willing to put in big bucks to buy the most, you know, useless of things. Well, I think you said it well before when you said the, uh, people of our sort of age were born in the prime time of merchandising and brand names. And I think what these uh, companies learned with Star Wars especially is that the fans were, they'd, they'd put out all this merchandise. They said, anyone, it, people have this thirst for Star Wars right now. We're going to just merchandise anything that we can with the Star Wars name on it and people are going to buy it. And people did. But then they started to pay attention, I think, that, that people were creating these collections and they thought, well, why don't we start marketing them as collections and it's going to be easier to get people to feel like they need to get it all. Mm. Um, I think Batman was a good example of that because all they needed to do was put that logo on whatever. It could just be a T-shirt. It could be a chocolate bar or whatever. And suddenly that's a part of the overall collection and you have to have that because it's got the official logo on it. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, I think that they're, they're very aware of, of that and, um, and the power of sticking a logo on something and knowing that people will see that as, as part of a bigger catalogue that they've got to own. Um, I think that it's it's certainly a conscious effort, and as you say, the billions, the billions now, almost three hundred billion in two thousand eighteen, uh, yeah. spent on collectibles, and and now that these comic movies are so much a part of the cinematic landscape, um, it's just not going to go away. So I have a bit of a theory that I've been talking about over the last few years, and that is that. When it comes to pop culture, um, if you look at census figures from Australia, America, wherever, when it comes to religion, traditional religion, Judeo-Christian religions in particular, numbers have gone down. The pews aren't being Mm. filled as they used to be. The people that used to go to the movies, uh, so go to cinemas, now go to the movies. They now go to Comic-Con. Um, they've replaced the traditional religions with this new pop culture religion. And you can just see it in in our own Australian senses. The term Jedi (laughs) has shown Mm -hmm. up in in, in the religion category. 
Of course, it's not a real religion. It's a fictional thing made up in a movie from 1977, but it's made such an impact and it's cut through so much into the psyche of many people right now that they actually see themselves as this fictional concept. Um, do you think that's some uh, theory that has some validity, that pop culture in itself has become almost religious in the way that it's been presented and the way it's been consumed? Because you mentioned it yourself, collections equal communities. And I think community, <clears throat> there's a certain almost kind of religious aspect to it. You are put, brought together by a symbol, in this case, uh, that symbol, which can also be, you know, I guess kind of substitute for the crucifix. Um, you, mm. There's a certain, there's a mythology behind it. There's characters behind it. In, in this case, you've got the comic books. And then you surround yourself with all of these things. Uh, it's it just, to me, it's kind of remarkable how people have replaced one thing with another. Well, yeah, they, I think that's, that's right. They, they have sort of, there's a void that needs to be filled. And uh, I think that there's a lot of people think that superheroes are sort of a modern mythology. Um, the story of the, the Greek gods and the Roman gods and all that have been sort of supplanted by the story of Batman and Superman and Spider-Man and all that. Uh, I think that there is an honesty um, in these stories that that is what draws people in and keeps them there. Um, Mm. I don't think, I mean, I could be wrong, but I don't think people go to see the latest Marvel movie because they just want to see some action. I don't think it's that kind of world anymore. I think that there's uh, an an investment in these characters and and, um, a belief in the, I don't know if I'd go so far as to say sincerity, but I think honesty is the right, is the right word. I think there's, they definitely, connect with an audience on that level. And I think that's part of why um, these are just so enduring. It's, 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 they make you feel like you want to be a part of that world. And a way to do that is to buy in with the merchandise. And that's a way that you can um, be closer to, to these fantastical worlds. What was Darren's reaction when you first saw the movie? Were there things in that film, in your film, sorry, that really struck him that he really didn't realize about himself or, you know, what really the thing about him is that he is a guy that he knows how to talk and he knows how to stay on script. And he has a certain perception of himself when he's watching his own life from the outside, looking in through another person's lens, does that kind of change things with him or has it changed things with him that you know of? Well, he, he does know how to talk and, and that's something that struck me straight away. If he'd been sort of really insular and, and um, introverted, it wouldn't, we wouldn't have been able to make the movie. But when I first spoke to him, I couldn't get a word in. He just was, um, it, it was a bombardment of, of thoughts and, and words. But he, did, it, it took him a long time to see the movie only because it took us so long to, to finish it. And I think yeah. by the time that he finally did see it, he'd forgotten a lot of what he told us, but he did sort of stick to a script. And when we would ask him questions, he'd sort of not answer them and get around to saying what he wanted to say. And it felt like it was his way of trying to take control of the project and make sure it was his version of things that was getting out. And we had to push him beyond that. So I think when he finally saw the finished product, he was surprised by some of what was in there and, and the way that we had interpreted what he said and the way that we had, um, uh, the, the context in which we had put what he had said. And I'm not trying to say that we uh, took him out of context or that we manipulated what he was saying because yeah. I think that we were very honest about what he what he gave us. 
But I just don't think he had ever seen it that way. I don't think he'd ever gotten the outsider's perspective of this is how it looks like to to us. This is what you've done. This is what we how we see what you've done. Um, and the filmmaker in Darren was sort of, I would have done this differently or I would have done that differently. But he, I think he was moved by it. I think that he um, he felt like it was a fair and um, honest um, take on what he had done. So if and we, we certainly were... weren't making the movie to do, we weren't making the movie to please him or anything. We were, we stuck to our own um, interpretation of of the situation. But he he, I don't know if it led to any kind of reflection. But I will say that after seeing it, he told me that he um, he had actually boxed up the collection and put it into storage. He hadn't gotten rid of it. He still got it. But he was inspired to finally move it out of that room, put it all in boxes and put it into storage and turn the room into a, a, a gym. Huh. Because from, so what I, can, yeah, from what I remember, the gym was placed outside because they wanted to have that room for the Batcave. So now a bit of progress there, which is a good thing. A little bit of progress. And I know you're not meant to really interfere with you. It's the prime directive kind of thing. But uh, it's it was, I think, a good thing that he had, that he had taken that step because I think he did need a push. And, and I think a lot of people are going to find his story to be just simply fascinating. So for everyone out there, Batman and me, uh, it's going to have its North American debut at Cinejoy. And that's actually between the 12th and the 15th of October, Australia time. You can actually go to uh, the Cinequest website, which is www.cinequest.org, and they got all types of um, packages and tickets and streaming options as well. And you can also check out batmanandme.com for any other news um, regarding releases and such. Do we have any news of, of yet, Michael, in regards to um, Australian uh, general release dates, DVD, or on um, digital, anything like that at the moment? Uh, we're working on that at the moment, but uh, I, I've got nothing to report at the moment. I'm sorry. Well, look, for everyone out there, you can actually watch this at the CineQuest uh, website. It's available to people in Australia as well. I really do recommend checking out this movie. It's just simply fascinating. And it's been a real pleasure talking to you, Michael, about the film and uh, about all things kind of like pop culture and the obsessions and the businesses behind it. And congratulations for you on a movie, five years in the making, finally out there for people to see. And look, I thank you for your time today. Thank you. It's been a pleasure.